This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Hi, I'm Dr. Kyson Frank. Welcome to another episode of Docera Digest. Today we're going to be talking about summer fun. So for those of you who can see us on video, you can see that we are decked out with our Hawaiian gear and ready for a summer party. So today we're going to talk about summer fun, how to stay healthy while having a lot of fun this summer, and just some things to uh, to keep in mind, uh, some knowledge, some tidbits, some information that may uh, be helpful to you as you uh, try to have fun this summer and stay healthy and prevent any disease. So I'm going to start today. I'm going to talk about our favorite superstar, and that is the sun. So the sun is the center of our solar system. Obviously, all the planets move around it. It is a hot plasma heated to incandescence by nuclear fusion at its core. So these reactions create energy, which makes light. So we get that in the form of UV ultraviolet, UVA, UVB, and then we also get infrared radiation. And this is also the most important source of energy for all life on Earth. So how does this benefit us? Well, number one, it helps with mental health. So it helps stabilize your mood by producing more serotonin, helps boost your immunity by increasing your white blood cells, improves your eyesight. So sun exposure is believed to correct nearsightedness. So when you have blurriness at distance, this is supposed to help with that. Also lowers cholesterol. The sun transforms high cholesterol in the blood into steroid hormones, so we can use them for other purposes. Increasing oxygen content in the human blood, so it allows us to have more energy, more stamina, for we can go out and be a little more fit this summer as we go out and exercise, which we're going to talk about here a little bit more. Also, there's a lot of uh, evidence of how it helps prevent cancer. Strengthens the bones through vitamin D, which helps us absorb more calcium. Helps us heal the skin, like eczema and jaundice. And it stimulates growth in children. So if you want your children to grow up healthy and happy, get them out in the sun, especially at a young age. It'll be very good for them. And then vitamin D helps balance out female and male sex hormones. So it helps with fertility and libido. So vitamin D deficiencies. So it was interesting. I was reading an article and it's talking about how the population living either above or below the 37th parallel of the equator north and that is basically between San Francisco and Richmond, Virginia. So cruising right underneath Colorado, Kansas, and Missouri, and kind of below that and above it. So those in the north, uh, they experience much more uh, less sun exposure, especially in the autumn, the winter months. So uh, it really changes the ability to actually be able to create vitamin D. So if you're above this line, you're going to have a lot more trouble creating vitamin D. So what we found is that the half-life of vitamin D is about three weeks. So people in northern, especially get up to closer to Canada, they become much more deficient by December. So when the leaves start falling off the trees, your vitamin D starts falling as well. So this is something that we got to keep in mind here. So you, if you're more challenged because you have less sun, then we need to either bring more vitamin D in or we need to bring in some sun lamps or something like that to help with that. So again, we're talking about summer here, not fall. We'll talk about that more later on. We talk about immune system uh, issues this fall. We're probably going to do a series on that. But the interesting fact is that most people in the North have less light by January. They have completely used up almost all their vitamin D stores. And between January and March to April, they're in a crisis mode of vitamin D, which is going to affect a lot of things. So getting those levels up are important. So now let's talk about UV rays. So we always hear about UV rays or ultraviolet. So there's two major types that actually get to the earth. There's ultraviolet C, which basically doesn't enter our atmosphere. Most of what we get is ultraviolet A. But ultraviolet B or UVB, that's the radiation that can cause sunburns. It can also cause skin cancers. So when we look at sun protection factor, most people know it as SPF, 
that if you have a SPF of five, let's say, that means that you should be able to stay out in the sun five times longer than it would be if you didn't have it to get a sunburn. So it basically gives you five times that. So the SPF though is only actually rated for UVB rays, not, not for UVA. So something to think about there. So midday summer sunlight is the greatest concentration and intensity of UB, UVB, which means that's when you're more likely to get burnt. So as a rule of thumb, if your shadow is longer than you are tall, there's less danger for the damaging effects of UV rays. This generally applies before 10 a.m. and then after 4 p.m., especially in the spring and summer months. It's also a good idea to check your UV index each day and dress accordingly. So some different tidbits of information I think that's important to go over here is harmful UV rays can also reflect off water, light colored surfaces. They can also double the amount of UV rays that strike your skin by doing this. UV rays also reach below the surface of the water. So when you think you're safe in the water, UV rays, you can still get up to 80% of the UVB rays at three feet in water depth. So even if you're in the shallows, you can still get burnt sitting out there. Uh, 80 on cloudy days, 80% uh, of UV rays can still hit you. So you can still get burnt on cloudy days. Keep that in mind. Uh, repeated small exposures are often better over time because if you get too much, you'll burn your behind. Really? <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Daily use of sunscreen is very important since intermittent actually application is less protective. So if you're going to be out there, make sure you use sunscreen. We're going to talk about sunscreen here in a second because that's a, a very hotly debated topic on uh, a lot of different areas right now. So we'll go over some of that here in a second. Uh, you should also wear tightly woven clothing or a broad brimmed hat. So what was interesting is that it is recommended that your hat brim be four inches or greater. I mean, that's a, that's a big hat. So get me a sombrero here. And you should make sure the top of the brim of the straw has sunproof liners in place so sunlight doesn't come in and burn the top of your head. Um, if you have a one-inch brim, it gives you a, a SPF of 1.5, and it gives very minimal protection for your chin, which can still get burnt. Broad brim with three inches. Uh, have an SPF of three for the cheek, seven for the nose, which is important because that's where most of our skin cancer gets the greatest uh, damage there. SPF on the neck is five, and SPF for the chin is two when you have three inches or greater. So something to think about when you're out in the sun, you want protection, get yourself a big hat. Well, what if you wear a baseball hat backwards, though? It gives you zero SPF on your face. <laughs> but your neck may have an SPF about seven. And you might get that nice little funny imprint right there, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends on whether you're wearing fit or not. But. There you go. So when we talk about being outside, SPF shirts, uh, our SPF for a typical summer shirt is about 6.5. So it gives you some protection there, but not entirely. There are uh, different shirts out there that are made of um, UV blocking materials that can get you up to 30 or 50. So if you're out on a boat, if you're fishing, different things like that where you're on the water, some of these shirts are nice to put on midday to give you a little more protection uh, during the, the harshness of the day there and the reflection coming off the water as well. So those are something to consider and look for there. So... Um, an interesting study I was reading about was that even though you get an SPF of like, let's say, 30, most people are only putting on a very minimal amount. And so their SPF is actually about 7 to 15 compared to where they do the laboratory testing to determine the SPF value. So the one of the, the interesting things was it said that you should use at least one ounce of sunscreen for adequate total body coverage for a standard adult. So if you're larger, you'll probably need more. If you're smaller, you probably need less, but you really wanna make sure you have a nice thick coating of that to really protect you, or you may not be getting what you think you're getting. So natural pigments such as titanium dioxide and zinc oxide are good for both UVB and UVA blockers. So these are natural ones, and we're gonna go into that a little bit more in a second here on what to look for. So a lot of these uh, natural things kind of got a bad rap or people didn't like them because they were really opaque, meaning that they literally turned you white or other colors because of it. But they have new versions of it now that are clear zinc that you should check out and see how that works for you. So what can go wrong if you don't have enough protection? Well, there's the non-skin cancer issues like photoaging, skin color changes, solar lentigo, tanner brown sprouts that are sun-exposed parts of the body, especially on the back of the hands. So a lot of people who work outside, manual workers, they get a lot of these, and we see that quite a bit there. Premature wrinkling, loose irregular skin, precancer skin, actinic keratosis, 
Rough sandpaper like skelly skin spots that can later turn to skin cancer. And let's talk about skin cancer. So basal cell carcinoma, the most common form of skin cancer, um, spreading to other parts of the body is very unlikely, but it's best treated and detected early and can be cured very easily with proper treatment. Squamous cell carcinoma is also a form that is very unusual for it to spread, but again, treat as fast as possible. And then we have malignant melanoma. This is the life-threatening form of a black mole skin cancer. Early treatment can be curative, high likelihood of spreading to other parts of the body if not treated often. So this one is malignant. It can spread throughout the body and it can cause death if it's not treated within a proper time period. So let's talk about what chemicals are in sunscreen you look out for. So there's a bunch of different ones out there. Here are the four that have the most studies behind it. There's a lot of other ones I'm not gonna really go over today. You can go back and you can Google it. You can look it up. But there's a lot of them that are, studies are being done right now with the FDA and everything else to go prove out what they're suspecting that some of these things are actually pretty bad as well. But the two big ones that you really need to look out for is oxybenzone and octinooxate. So those ones are, are real big issues because they sort of the skin, they get into your bloodstream, they can get to the breast milk, and it alters your hormone balance. So we're trying to stabilize hormones. We're trying to get things balanced out here. This can throw your body into chaos if that gets messed up. Two of the other more moderate ones we need to look out for is homocylate and octocrylene. These can cause skin allergies. It also kills coral. So if you're safety-minded when you're at the reef or you're out in the ocean, you want to make sure you keep the coral reef safe. Those are two you need to look out for because they also damage the marine life there. Now let's talk about something to look for when we're looking for a healthy sunscreen. So two of the big things that we use that have the least amount of toxicity to them are going to be the titanium dioxide and the zinc oxide that we talked about before. They're both biodegradable, harmless to coral and marine life. It doesn't absorb through your skin, and it provides UVA protection and broad spectrum to both UVA and UVB. So both of these are going to be very important. Um, again, there are ones out there that will turn your skin more opaque, make you look white and pasty. There are other ones, though, that say clear zinc on them. So you may want to check those out and see if you can find something like that to really help out and protect yourself. Again, we are all about having fun this summer and taking it easy. So. Wow. I'm telling you what, that's a lot of stuff to know about the sun. Huh. And, and also, I, I think about that. It isn't just vitamin D3. It's D1 and D2 as oh, well. Yeah, uh, other factors in there. But, you know, summertime is one of those kind of things we all look forward to. Um, you know, at the time we're filming this, most people are out of school or getting out of school uh, relatively soon. And what do we all do? We all think about going, having fun in the water. Now, for, for us doctors here, we're landlocked. You know, we're in the middle of the country, you know. And so we don't normally think of things like oceans, right, or beaches that much. And some of us live on lakes, you know, some of us been around water a lot. Some of us are water bugs. And so there's a lot of things that happen in the water or on the water. And generally, we're going to talk about just some of the fun stuff. But I, I want to caution some of us as well. There are some pretty serious aspects of what happens in the water, right? Now, when we say water, especially during the summertime, a lot of times we think of swimming pools, hot tubs. Um, sometimes we think of kids swimming pools you know we have babies out there in, in, in the pools uh, we think of public uh, swimming holes or swimming pools we think of ponds creeks streams rivers and oceans or even the the great lakes for those that are around these other areas we have a lot of clients and patients that live on the on the coastal waterways or live on on the coast or they go to the beach i like going to the beach as often as i can for everybody that knows me or you know all my clients and patients to know one of my best acronyms for beach is Best escape anyone can have, <laughs> right? So I also like the beach for a lot of other reasons. A, the electricity that is in the water that with the tides that creates electricity on the earth, which is what resets all of us. So there's a very therapeutic and beneficial health aspect about going to the beach and literally getting your feet into the sand of the water and letting the waves hit that water. It regrounds you. It re-energizes you. It brings the earth's pulsivity, if you will, back into it. And we'll talk about frequencies another time, but it's the healing properties that helps our body. Our bodies resonate with that type of frequency uh, coming off the, the ocean waves and hitting it. It's interesting that Dr. Akash was talking about the ABV and uh, the ABA, because when we think about that water, the clear water, we all like clear water, right? Well, that clear water lets the sun rays or ABV go into that, as he said, up to three feet deep. And there's even different swimming suits that people wear to still get a suntan, 
right? Even through the suit. And then there's others, as he mentioned, that blocks it all out. But when we're talking about being on the water, there's a lot of different things we do in the water. It isn't just swimming, although that's the most critical point. And there's a lot of things we need to understand about swimming. And first and foremost, you know, my biggest recommendation is make sure everybody knows how to swim. And if you have a young child that know how to swim, boy, you are their lifeline if you get in water. And we forget that over 40% of all childhood drownings and they reference that people under 19 years of age, not 10 or 12, but 40% of all them that occur in the United States happen in open water. Now, whether we think of like a rock quarry pond, <clears throat> excuse me, whether we think like a farm pond, and there's a lot of things we have to be aware of when we think about in, in swimming. And the first thing is, is learn how to swim. And so if you don't know how to swim or somebody in your family didn't know how to swim, boy, that's the very first thing you need to do, right? There's going to be a lot of different rules, and you can Google all the different tips. I'll give you some of the ones that are basic things that we need to talk about when you're going to go swimming. But I want to bring in a couple other factors that we forget, and that is how fast it is for somebody to drown. And the moment that you respond to a text, somebody can drown. And the moment you take your eyes off to go get a drink, somebody can drown. One of the, the biggest tips I like to tell people is if you're with a group of people, designate a water watcher, right? Now I've had swimming pools, we've had huge parties at my house, you know, swimming parties at the lakes, you know. Um, you gotta designate somebody and there needs to be somebody that is responsible. You know, don't put a 10 year old child as a designated water watcher, you know, when you have older or younger people out there swimming. Another thing about being a water watcher is making sure that they're not inebriated. I mean, we need somebody who is sharp and looking and not somebody who's sitting there, uh, just a second here, you know, scrolling on text or doing something else, right? If you're gonna be a designated water watcher, you are taking in the life of the people you're watching. You're responsible. So I know that's a little heavy, but I, I want us to understand the significance of being around water. And I've been around water pretty much all my life, We've been called water bugs, you know, we swim in the water, we love the water, can't get enough of the water. And we'll talk about drinking that in a moment, but anyway. So being around water, <clears throat> there's just a lot of water safety tips you need to do. A couple of the more simple ones, don't ever swim alone. I go to the beach all the time, right? If I'm down there by myself, I don't go swimming, as crazy as that seems, right? If I am gonna go swimming, I'm by myself, I will designate someone to watch me or watch my stuff. Say, hey, I, I'm swimming alone, I'm gonna go out. Would you just make sure I'm okay, right? Couple other simple little tips. Don't ever swim where you can't touch. That seems crazy, especially when we think about the ocean. We wanna get out in that ocean, we wanna have fun, but you better be a darn good swimmer, right? You better make sure you have good things. And most people, I mean, we have clients and patients and, and family members that, I mean, they are professional swimmers. They go do all these triathlons and all these different things where they swim in the oceans and even the strong swimmers die, they drown, right? So we have to be careful of that. And I already mentioned, as far as the water watchers, watch the alcohol around water. I can't tell you how many people I know living on a lake or being on lakes that people get out there on a Friday night or Saturday night, they're having a party, having fun, and something happens because alcohol is involved, right? Choose what you're, what you're going to do and where you're going to do it. If you're going to consume or imbibe, don't be out on the water, right? Too many accidents happen. There is, and don't quote me this stat, but as I'm just pulling out of my memory, there was over like 5,500 water boating accidents that killed people in this country last year. There's over 12 million registered boats in this country. And when you put alcohol in there, that's a crazy thing. And oh, by the way, that doesn't take into, into account canoes, kayaks, waterboarding, snorkelers, scuba divers, that was just boating accidents. So that leads me to that next phase. If you're gonna boat, whether it's motorized or non-motorized, know your boat, know the rules. Every state has different rules. Most of them have a commonality of, of rules, but every state has their own unique rules about being on the lakes, the waters, rivers, the, the, whatever. Know the rules and always, always, I don't care who you are, have a life jacket on. And there's a lot of guidelines about life jackets. One, make sure they fit. Right? I have 10 grandkids and we have had life jackets for almost every size that there is. 
And sometimes, you know, they go, I don't like that one, Granddaddy. I want to wear that one. I go, no, that's not your size. It's not the appropriate one. And there's different rules. Like, for example, if I put it on you, can I pull it off of you? Well, that's not right. Or if you put it on, you know, and you can pull it up if they get in the water and it's way up here, well, that's not saving their life, right? Because the life jacket is designed to, number one, keep your head above water, and number two, flip you over. That's what they're supposed to do. So if you get knocked out of a boat or if you have some form of a dehydration issue while you're in the water and you become uncognizant, they're designed to keep you alive, right? Head above water and on your back, right? So make sure that you're being really careful with that. And I'm, I'm going to be one of those guilty guys, you know, for years. Just give me the little belt. That's all I need. I'm a great swimmer, right? Until I got on jet skis and I had a jet ski accident and realized that would not have saved my life. And so immediately I went and got the proper things to wear. Which leads me to the second part about this when we're talking about boating safety or water toy safety, right? If you're out on the water, know your device, right? I have had a lot of jet skis that would go 80 mile an hour. And the funnest thing to do is to go 80 mile an hour and get knocked off that thing and go skipping across the water at about 50 mile an hour and end up a quarter mile away from your jet ski in a current and you gotta swim and go get it. Know your device, right? Um, I've also taken a three-seater jet ski and flipped it over and that's not supposed to be possible, right? I'm the crazy guy, okay? I was just bragging. Yeah, no, not bragging, <laughs> not bragging, I'm telling you. That. See, see, we think them we're in our teenage years that we're bold and tough and cocky. And then somewhere between 20 to 40, we take on a Superman or Superwoman attitude and we're tough and we can handle it. And then when you get into the 50s, you know, or higher where I'm at, all of a sudden you realize I'm not as smart or strong as I think I used to be. <laughs> and so it does alter what we do. All right. So kind of leads me to the next phase of that. Know your age and your, and your capacity and your abilities. Because if you don't, you're going to end up having some serious issues. And again, I've seen or read reports where people, kids, drown in hot tubs. We've seen where kids drown in bathtubs. Know your water rules, all right? It's just that that's significant. And those are preventables. There are some things you can't control, and that's my next topic I want to bring up, and what we call the un uncontrollables, especially on beaches. For those of us that are in the Midwest that don't go to the beach very often, or we don't know or understand the power of the ocean over the beach, or even in the Great Lakes, those waves are powerful, right? And so every public beach will post flag colors, right? So those, those colors mean specific things. For most of us, green is safe. It's safe to go into the water. It's safe to have fun in the water. Yellow is very cautious. You need to be very careful because there are something in the currents that are causing you problems. And a red means that there's riptides. Now, those of us who live in the in the mid middle part of the country or on the coastlines, we don't really understand the true concept of riptides or riptide currents, all right? First of all, we think, well, if I get in there, I can swim out of them. These things can be 100 yards or more wide Try to swim out of a football field when it's pulling you out to the ocean. If any of you have ever gone scuba diving and you get caught in an undercurrent riptide, it'll take you a mile deep into the ocean. You have to know these things, right? So if you ever see a double red flag, that means the water is closed, not the beach. The beach is okay because there's no water in the beach, right? <laughs> On the sand part. But get it out there. And if you ever see purple, that means there is some foreign animal or something that could harm you in the water. Right, I'm one of those crazy guys that was down in you know the Caribbean and I swam with some sharks and that was a cool looking fish, man. I got too close, <laughs> right? So be wise. I mean, see, my, my father used to say, the best educator is experience, but the better educator is other people's experiences, right? So I'm trying to give you some of my faults, my, my things. The, the next thing I wanna just make sure we, we kind of go into and, and just understand that I don't care what device you're on, whether it's a kayak, whether you're waterboarding, whether you're skiing, whether you're snorkeling or scuba diving, know the parameters of the area that you're doing this in, right? Know the rules, right? And those are easy to research. People already have boats. They should have already taken some boating course. You know, not all states require that. Uh, not all states require certain ages of boating, but some states do. So just make sure you're aware of that. And then if you're going to go snorkeling, right? There's a lot of good things about snorkeling that's fun. 
just remember, don't ever snorkel where you can't swim, right? And most people think they can snorkel over anything where they can't swim, and that's danger in that area because there's undercurrents within that or there's marine life underneath that that can harm you. How do I know that? Well, my wife that passed away, not because of this, but we were down in uh, the Caribbean once again, and she got bit by something and we ended up in the hospital, right? We didn't know that. We were just snorkeling up over the coral and some of the stuff, and little Mike came up and bit her, and Legs rolled up huge, and anyway, just just kind of know where, where you're at in those things. The other thing, if you want to go scuba diving, take the classes, get certified. There are so many rules about that, but there's a different world when you're 80 to 100 feet deep in the ocean. Been there, love it, got scared, done a lot of them, right? Go with a buddy, know all those rules, right? Um, the next thing I'm going to talk about is something that we don't normally think much about, and that is what else is in the water with you, <laughs> Okay, now in the oceans, we don't have to worry so much about that. But in ponds and streams and creeks, there are things that are living off of animal poo that have ended up in that water and can cause you some issues. Now, for those of you who haven't seen our Parasite series, I highly encourage you to go back and watch that. And I can give you a list of about 10 different things. Cryptosporidium is probably one of the biggest ones. Giardia is another big one that we have to be worried about here in the U.S. That is a huge factor that can show up. So what does that mean? Please don't swallow the water. And how many times do we as kids, you know, have water shooting, spitting contests, you know, in lakes and ponds and all these different things, you know? Okay, and if your body can handle that, if the immune system's there and you can fight that stuff off, you're good. But if you're weak or you can't, or you have some other issues that don't do that, guess what you're gonna end up with? Problems, right? And some things don't show up for five weeks, some show up five minutes, some show up five hours, some five months, some five years before you have problems. Which leads me to another funny thing. If you're sick, please stay out of the water. If you're fighting a fever or a temperature, there's something wrong with you. And there's only four ways out of this body, right? You breathe it out, you sweat it out, you pee it out, and you poop it out. And if you do any of those four in the water, guess what? You become the spreader, right? So we tell people, if you've had any diarrhea within the last one to three days, please stay out of the water. Right, because you're just passing this stuff on to somebody else. All right, be aware of where you are. All right, and that's going to bring me to hydration. Right, we, I'm going to encourage you to go back and watch the series we did on water and hydration. Um, there's a lot to it. Most people think that when they're in the water, they don't have to drink water. I'm sorry, but you're not absorbing water. You're playing in the water. Now you're absorbing stuff in the water, but not the water itself. So stay hydrated. Right, And there's a lot of things Dr. Frank talked about a little bit on the heat stroke issues. There's a lot of concerns about how much water you should have, right? Our general rule is since the body is 65 to 70% water, you need to consume that much liquid or fluid per day per body weight. So a 100 pound person needs 70 ounces. 200 person needs 140 ounces. Oh, by the way, a gallon is 128 ounces, right? Drink your water. And people think, well, I'm in water. I don't have to drink it. No, you do. You become dehydrated. And if you become more dehydrated, you sunburn faster, right? Your body has the ability to fight things off, right? So when I'm talking about these factors, we just need to understand that it is significant. It's fun. It's a great place to be. But there's a lot of safety issues. And if you're not aware of it, it's kind of my final tip is please plan ahead, whether it's on a boat, whether it's on a jet ski, uh, whether it's in a canoe, whether it's floating down the river, right, with the cooler full of stuff to drink and eat, right? You got to remember, you got to know currents, you got to know seasons and times. Do your research and you'll save lives. I'm telling you, I've had too many risky things that are there that's happening. So with that, do your research, have fun, enjoy it. It's a great experience in life to be in water and enjoy Because by the way, you were started in water. <laughs> Who's next? Dr. Luke. Okay. I believe it's Dr. Luke. With that, Dr. Luke. <laughs> down on the topic here. Hey, a question was asked earlier. I'm going to ask it again. Yeah. What happened to the top of your helmet? Oh. <clears throat> <laughs> I lost it on the way in. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dr. B. So, I'm going to talk about food in the summertime, and we'll just dive right in here. So, if your family is anything like mine... Uh, summertime is definitely a busy time where it feels like every weekend is filled with something fun or some event and the weekdays are spent trying to entertain kids and keep them occupied. Or thinking back to when I was a kid, maybe you're a family with multiple sporting events going on for your kids and that comes with a lot of traveling. Uh, regardless of what keeps you busy, it's the fact that you are busy. 
And so with that, it can be extremely challenging and difficult and maybe perhaps even overwhelming to adhere to some kind of routine when it comes to eating, not just quality of food, but having a consistent eating schedule as well. And I don't want to steal too much of my own thunder with that because here in the next episode, we're going to have a couple coaches on and we're going to dive into a little bit more of the specifics and nuanced uh, issues when it comes to food. Um, <clears throat> so stay tuned on that. But for now, I want to provide some quick tips on summer fun and food. And I want you to think of these um, tips as wise sayings that are generally true. Of course, this can be a nuanced topic. It doesn't apply to everyone. So uh, keep that in mind as we're going through these. So I think right off the bat, the first thing that comes to mind is the portion size of your food. All right, with summertime and all these different events and holidays and so forth and so on, there's a lot of social gatherings and celebrations and again, travel. Uh, so a good tip would be to eat about, at least for me, eat about till when you're 80% full or when you feel that way. You don't have to feel miserable after every meal. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> no, take all the fun out of it. <laughs> um, so another option is if you know you're going to a big event, uh, a gathering, a celebration, what have you, uh, consider fasting leading up to it. Um, that way you have something to look forward to and, and you can kind of let loose a little bit and have fun. Um, and this could be something like an intermittent fasting approach. Uh, kind of the most common approach with that is a, a 16 hour fasting window and an eight hour feeding window. Um, so an example of that would be eating anywhere from 12 to eight, but the caveat is you don't want to eat your heart out <laughs> within that feeding window. <laughs> eight hours of eating. Hey, <laughs> so is that constant? But keep in mind, uh, fasting is not for everyone. So of course, talk with your health provider before implementing such a thing. Uh, another quick tip is the quality of foods. Whole foods beat processed food any day. <clears throat> So think of things like good protein, uh, meat, vegetables, fruit, and choosing something like a lower glycemic food. Uh, in simpler terms, that's something that's not going to spike your blood sugar as quick. Uh, another tip with that is avoid additives and dyes in food. I don't have time necessarily to jump into each specific additive or dye, uh, but these are things like high fructose corn syrup. Um, just to give you, I guess, kind of a, a classic example, and you guys feel free to jump in on this and give your, your clinical insight as well. But red 40 is kind of the classic example. Again, that's red dye 40. Uh, this causes things like allergies, sensitivities, uh, mood and behavioral dysfunction, particularly in kids, uh, hyperactivity, gut inflammation, and so on. And I'm going to give you listener or watcher some homework and research, uh, to the various effects that these have. So I'm going to give you some here to go look up again, red 40 red three, yellow five, yellow six, green three, blue one, and blue two. Uh, another thing too is, I think Dr. Craig, you'll probably be proud of me for thinking of this one. Uh, don't allow fear to drive you and overwhelm you. Just be sure to be conscious and aware of what you're putting in your body and the potential effects it can have. And, and another quick note on that, <clears throat> it can be extremely detrimental to allow this to emotionally consume you to where you feel this pressure to live such an extreme natural life. What's more, it can also give you kind of a false superiority complex where maybe you think that you're better than everyone else because you live this all natural life and your, your friends or your family or, or loved ones are not. And it can cause you to have some judgment towards them and, and perhaps even some contempt. And I've seen that happen way too often, even within my own family. So if you allow it, if you allow yourself to go down that path, it can be even more destructive to your body than any toxin, any chemical, or any infectious component that's within you, or it could worsen those things. So <clears throat> please be aware of that. Don't be overwhelmed. Just be mindful. And you know what? Enjoy a good cheeseburger and milkshake every once in a while if you can. Have fun. And as we say here in the office, enjoy the ride. <laughs> a couple tips to close this out here. Um, this is kind of Captain Obvious. Uh, Dr. Ben kind of hit on it pretty well, but nonetheless, I feel like it needs to be continue to be addressed is limit alcohol consumption. Avoid certain drinks if you know that you have issues. For instance, if you're gluten sensitive, might want to stay away from beer or any drink with wheat in it or rye or barley, what have you. If wine makes you feel miserable the next day, that could be due to how your body breaks down and metabolizes sulfur components. So find another alternative. Try to make consuming alcohol, if you are consuming alcohol, an occasional thing and not something done every day just because it's summertime. Also worth noting, you don't need alcohol to have a good time. 
So don't let it don't let it rule over you. We're proof of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And and also as Dr. Ben said, and as uh, the last episode with Dr. Kelly, stay very well hydrated. Uh, and, and again, be sure to check out that episode on water with Dr. Kelly. And then lastly, to close this out here is try to incorporate as many foods that are in season and shop local when and if you can. Eating foods that are in season, really the primary way or reason why you'd want to do that is when you eat foods that are in season, these foods are way more chock full of their nutrients that they contain as if you eat them when they aren't in season. Uh, and there's a really cool link. I don't know. Is there any way, Jason, we can link that in? Cool. I'm going to link that in. It's a seasonal food guide website. You go in, you can plug in your state and your month, and you can see all the various foods that are in season. That way you don't have to memorize it. Dr. Luke, I want to add to that. What's interesting is if you really stop thinking about the foods that are in season, it's protective mechanisms for the body of that season as right. well. Right. And we talk a lot about cell life, meaning C-E-L-L, versus shelf life, right? Or as Darren Hardy said to me one time, he said, or do you mean cell life, S-A-L-E? <laughs> right. right. So Exactly. Exactly. That's a great point. So that's all I have on food. And next, uh, we're going to turn it over to Dr. Caleb. Mr. Sweatband, right here. <laughs> Caleb Balboa. Bring the heat, brother. <laughs> Bring the heat. <laughs> all right. So I'm going to be talking about exercising in the summer. For those of you who aren't watching, I've got my fancy 80s style headband and wristbands on to protect me from all the sweat, right? So <clears throat> when it comes to exercising in the summer, so... Uh, Dr. Kyson talked about a lot of different facts, uh, some illuminating facts, if you will, uh -huh. uh, especially talking about how the, you know, when between 10 and 4 p.m., 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., that's typically going to be the hottest part of the day and where those UV rays are hitting you the most directly. Um, so it might be a good idea to avoid those times if you're exercising outside. So if you can either switch to an indoor routine, that might be a good option for you. Or for those of you who can't fit your um, exercises early in the morning or later in the evening, um, we're going to go over some tips to be safe while you're out there in the hot part as well. But if you do switch to the morning or later in the evening, I do want to go ahead and say if it's dark out, make sure you take some safety precautions. Um, reflective or light-colored clothes and gear that will make you easier to see in headlights is a very, very good uh, choice. Um, also, try to run in well-lit public areas if you can. Um, if you are nervous about where you're running or the path, take some pepper spray um, or some other protective devices and uh, maybe carry a flashlight or wear a headlamp, you know, if it's really, really dark. But uh, another thing, too, is light-colored clothes aren't going to absorb those UV rays or the sunlight as well. So um, they'll be, you'll be cooler wearing those than, if you will, if you wear dark-colored clothes. Not as cool as you look right now, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm all about that style. Got that Florida vibe going right now, you know, with a little bit of Hawaii mixed in. <laughs> Definitely some Florida Bama there. Oh, yeah. Yep. Got my little uh, flip-flops. But he's all American, though. <laughs> yeah, he my blue, baby. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Hey, I got my American pride, you know. <laughs> All well, right. But, but Dr. Kennedy, what you're trying to tell me, I can't have a duplicity aspect, meaning I can't run and get suntanned at the same time? No. <laughs> well, you can. Just be smart about yeah, how you do that, you know. Use the correct sunscreen. Yes. Natural options are great. Look at them. They're going to be a lot safer for you in the long run. Speaking of long runs. <laughs> yeah. How about a short run? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So again, I do want to talk about uh, the importance of staying hydrated. You know, we we do have another episode coming out where we had an interview with Dr. Kelly Halderman, which we're going over a lot of great info on water and the health benefits of it. But I do want to highlight a couple quick things with that. So when you think about being hydrated, it's not just water, it's water and electrolytes. So some great options to stay hydrated is not really the sugary sports drinks. You know, I mean, they'll give you some electrolytes, they'll give you some fluid, but there's going to be a lot of other stuff that's going to counteract what you're trying to do in there, especially some of those dyes that Dr. Luke just talked about. Uh, so good options would be like lemon infused water or citrus infused water or natural lemonades. Uh, those are going to be better for you. Also, the more you sweat, the more you need to replenish. Typically, we tell people on a regular day or just in regular, you know, 
without a lot of exercise and sweating, we want 50 to 60% of your body weight in fluid ounces. If you're sweating or even working outside in the summer and you're getting a lot of sweat coming off, you want to do probably 70 to 80% at a minimum. And also to that, remember in running or exercising, you're breathing harder, Mm -hmm. so you're expelling more fluid out as well. It isn't just sweating. Because people get, become dehydrated running in the wintertime, right? Mm-hmm. Because as we're breathing, you know, that's one of the ways water comes out of our body, too. So, so staying hydrated is absolutely critical if you're running out in that heat. Um, also, with food, I want to touch a couple things with that. So, if you're going to be eating anytime relatively close to when you're going out, lighter foods are going to be better. If you're eating heavy foods, your body is going to focus blood and energy towards the gut, which means it's going to be taking blood and energy away from the muscles, and they won't be able to handle the load or the intensity of your workout quite as well. It also might be a good idea to decrease the intensity compared to what you would normally do because your body is working harder in that process. Um, So what is the importance of sweat? So sweat is actually part of your body's cooling process. And it's not just that moisture will, you know, cool off the skin. It's the evaporation of that moisture that really does that cooling effect. So as the water or the sweat evaporates off of you, it borrows heat energy from your body to do that conversion process. Um, So make sure you keep cooled. Uh, They have a lot of uh, options. The... um, as far as uh, clothing, you can get some of the uh, sw- the wicking, you know, sweat gear. That will help quite a bit as far as keeping you cool. Um, maybe look into some of that UV blocking uh, clothes as well. That might be good options if you're especially out in the, like the noontime or when it's really um, the hottest and the brightest. Um, also, just kind of go over the signs of heat stroke again. So... If you're getting hot, flushed, and you have red or dry skin with the absence of sweating, that's a very clear sign that you need to stop, get somewhere cool, and, you know, take care of yourself. If your pulse gets extremely rapid, if you have a lot of breathing problems, if you get dizzy or disoriented or you start hallucinating, those are all great signs that you need to stop and find some place to chill out. (laughs) Um, So severe cases can even lead to seizures, coma, or worse. So those are that's typically for the runners. People are doing a lot of outside exercises. Um, what are some funner ways that we can exercise without necessarily feeling like we're exercising? Well, swimming is a great option. You can still get a lot of resistance. You still get a lot great workout without getting all sweaty, which is a big um, point for a lot of people out there. I know several people who absolutely hate sweating, and uh, this would be a great option for you during the summer. <laughs> again, do be aware that you can still get burned up to three feet or more under there because those UV rays will penetrate more than you think. So that, that three foot, though, is just saying at three feet, you still received 80% of it. Yeah. So even going down to 10 feet, you can still get up to 20% of it. So it's not just that three foot boundary. It's not like it's just three foot and you're done, but it still has that right. effect. has a gradient if, effect. If you can see the bottom of the of the water, UV rays are going through it. Yeah. Hitting the bottom good point. coming up. Right. Yep. And some people love to sweat. Luke over here was like, <laughs> I love to sweat. I do. Love the pump. <laughs> I'm a well, sweataholic. Here's a great option for for those of you that like to sweat. You know, maybe some beach volleyball or around here sand volleyball since we don't really have any beaches. And uh, <laughs> I actually thought this was kind of interesting that there was a study done by Harvard where they actually showed that sand volleyball is much more effective at burning calories than regular volleyball or indoor volleyball. Did you guys know that? Yeah, as well as running on the beach or on the sand is more than. (laughs) But it was interesting because they said a 125-pound person playing a non-competitive, so just a friendly little game of indoor volleyball, will typically burn about 90 calories, while during sand volleyball will burn 240 calories. So, again, if you are playing competitively, which, you know, most of your family volleyball games are going to be really competitive. At least our family volleyball games are pretty competitive. Well, well, we got to open an office on the beach. So, we so, uh, there we go. <laughs> so those will all increase the intensity or the amount of calories that you can actually burn. So another great option, something I enjoyed a lot when I was younger, was Ultimate Frisbee. 
That's going to be a little more intense than some of the options. But, or you can even do frisbee golf if you like a little more chill where you get some good walking in, get some good twisting core action stuff, but you don't have quite the intensity that you would with some of the other ones. Um, summer is also a great time to try some lower intensity workouts like yoga, qigong, or tai chi, things that are good at enhancing both stability and flexibility, um, things that balance muscle systems, strengthen cores, increase stability around joints. That way you're still exercising, you're still doing or, you know, strengthening your body, but not necessarily doing it with an intensity that's more likely to get you injured. So... Um, so recovery, when it comes to recovering from that, or even taking little breaks, if you start to recognize some of those signs of heat strokes and you need to cool off quickly, um, definitely find some shade. That's a great option. Also cooling. If you're going to try to cool yourself, you know, a lot of times we put the cooling uh, towels on our neck and stuff, but one of the best options is actually cooling the palms of your hand the bottom of your feet or on your face because those um, some of the vascular systems there will actually take or kind of exchange the heat faster than some of the other areas and it's great for cooling down the core and the brain quickly and um, I'm actually going to talk about this a little more in another episode where we um, talk with the, uh, the personal trainers but this can actually increase your effectiveness in some of your exercises as well, doing cooling in between sets. Um, there was a study done um, where they measured running ability, pull-up ability, and bench press ability, and this increased their effectiveness by up to 300%. Now, that's in gar regards to sets and reps, not overall strength. That doesn't mean if you bench 200, you'll be able to bench 600, but you can, if you can do, you know, three sets of 10 at 200, you might be able to do six or nine uh, sets instead. So it can actually increase that. So again, we'll talk about that more when we talk to the personal trainers, but that is something to keep in mind, uh, especially that cooling effect just to cool down the core and the brain quickly. That will definitely stave off some of those heat stroke symptoms and concerns really quickly. Let me add something to it, Dr. Caleb, because whether we're, it's a personal issue that we're experiencing that we're getting dehydrated and we're, we're getting close to heat stroke, a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to go drink a bunch of water. Or if you come up on somebody or you're working with somebody and you think they're getting heat stroke, one of the most common things we do is push water. And the research has shown that's the worst thing to do. The best thing is to cool the body down, immediately get them out of the hot environment, get something cooling on them. It's even been said it's better to put ice on their lips instead of water or cool that body down. And so a lot of people want to rush to, to drink water when they're starting to feel dehydrated and too much water actually causes a problem. Sipping on that water is a little bit easier, but you're right. The first thing to do is get out of the heat, find that shade, cool the body down, then give them the water. So another thing I want to talk about is rest. So it's easy to let summer plans keep you really busy. And, you know, we like to have a lot of fun, but sometimes it's so busy that we are so stressed, even though we're having fun, we're stressed because we always got so much going on. It's kind of like when you go on vacation and then you get back from your vacation, you had so much going on. You're like, I need to rest for my vacation before I go back to work. Right. So it's great to plan in some times to rest so you're not always in that sympathetic fight or flight mode. You're not always in that adrenaline pumping mode, but where your body can actually rest, relax, and recover. Another thing, too, that a lot of people don't really think about is keeping your bedroom cool at night because if it's too hot, it can interfere with your sleep patterns, which is when your body and your brain does its most effective healing and recovery processes. So if you're room is too hot at night, you're not going to sleep as well. You're not going to get into that well-rested state. You're not going to be healing, especially if you're doing all these um, fun activities that cause stress and strain on the body, especially if you're not used to going out and exercising and you go to a lot of parties and have, you know, play a lot of volleyball or, you know, ultimate frisbee or whatever, you're having all this fun. It still puts a strain on your body. So make sure you're taking care to rest and recover. And air movement air moving yep. helps as well. All right. So with that in mind, we'll uh, turn it over to Dr. Craig. Thanks. What's bugging you? What's <laughs> bugging you, buddy? You stole my thunder. <laughs> you guys are talking about all this fun stuff. I'm going to tell you what bugs me about summer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 
I'm going to talk about the pests, the unwelcome friends we have when it comes to summertime. Now, you know, talking about in-laws? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. What's I that? I didn't mean in-laws. that. <laughs> I, I didn't mean that. That was a joke. I thought it was talking about us. I'm in-laws. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things I'm actually going to talk about, even before we even get to the typical summer bugs, it's interesting around here, all the moths. And somebody was talking about how because we didn't, we had a very mild winter and it wasn't very wet, it allowed these moths to just perpetuate and not only get more numerous, but even bigger. And so what I find funny is, as you know, moths are not these dangerous insects. The worst they're going to do is create some damage to your clothing. It's funny, though, because at my household, I find my wife's a little bit more irritated because of all these moths. So indirectly... It's because she does not like them. And my wife is not alone because I noticed at the office, (laughs) Stacy, even though she logically knows they cannot harm her, she's at this, in this anxious state all the time about being dive bombed by this vicious (laughs) To be fair, she doesn't like anything that flutters or flies. She likes them from a distance, but when they're close to her, if she can hear them right beside her ear, she freaks out. But well, it's kind of funny to watch. I am so going to mess with her now. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, dear. Well, it's it's also it's interesting how you know we're talking about summer, but different environmental changes throughout the year impact us. What may happen one summer isn't the same as what happens the next. So it's just it's really interesting. So what I'm going to talk about the most is the typical bugs that we see during the the summer. So and and bugs in general are just more active during the summer, which makes sense. You know, the warmer months are most active. So first, I'm going to talk about mosquitoes, you know, nature's uh, venipuncturist that we all love so much. That's probably the one I'll focus on the most because really that's the one that we get bit by the most. So what's interesting is um, when you talk about mosquitoes, mosquitoes tend to be more prevalent near water because what they do is they lay their eggs in standing water. And they're also more active at dusk and dawn. So as I was kind of doing some of the study for this, I was on a um, exterminator's website. And he just they kind of gave some preventative tips. So a couple of the tips were um, avoid the outdoors during the dusk and dawn. Wear clothing over your arms and legs. And one of the things, backing up just a little bit, what I also want to take into account too is the reason mosquitoes are such a big issue too is because they can pass viruses, bacteria, and parasites. So we and and if you if you haven't listened to our one on Lyme and those type of uh, you know parasite, I encourage you to go back and listen to those because these are one of the transmission vectors. Uh, for Jurassic those. Park, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just it's interesting to think about. Well, I just think about I've got this thing that's got its nose in my skin. That's just not a pleasant thought process, and it's sucking the blood out of it. So anyway, so that's number one. Look at that. What's that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's not reference that. <laughs> Number two is ticks, which we talked about, obviously, in our Lyme series. They're typically found in, in grassy and wooded areas, which we tend to think more of the wooded forest areas. But an interesting experience, I was mowing my mom's lawn the other day, and I'm driving back, and I'm going, hey, what? something's on my knee here. And I felt down. I'm like, there's this little bump. And I'm like, well, sure enough. And I grabbed this thing, and I'm like, that little sucker. So I literally made him hit the road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The jokes, they just keep on coming. Don't it's worry. It's like herding cats some days uh, in here. <laughs> These dad is. jokes. It is. But again, what's important with ticks is same type of thing. They can pass bacteria primarily and either also viruses and parasites as well. So the biggest prevention tip for ticks is be vigilant. Not only with yourself, but also your clothing, because they can get on your clothing. Yeah. Anytime you're in a grassy area, especially tall grass, anytime you're in a wooded area, always check yourself. I remember we went on a family trip and we came back and there was, they were all over the place. I mean, it just, you're like, how'd you get there? Right. So they get an increasing of your clothing. Yeah. And you don't think about that very often, but exactly. So the third one we're going to talk about is chiggers. This one was kind of interesting. So chiggers are a a tiny mite that they're in the spider and uh, tick family. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that one too. So, but they're also more active, obviously, during the summer. They they live in grassy areas. What I found interesting though was chigger larvae can get into your clothing, and when they do, they release a digestive enzyme that kind of uh, eats up your skin, and they create what is called a stylostome which is a straw that they suck your skin out of, basically. Now, that's a pleasant thought for summer. Mm-hmm. 
I thought I was ticked off before, but yeah. now. <laughs> so if you do get exposed to chiggers, the, the primary thing most people experience is itching that can last 24 to 48 hours, but it can take up to two weeks for them to go away and fall off. So that's kind of an interesting as well. Next is bees, hornets, and wasps. So bees are not typically aggressive, and they typically won't sting you unless, you, unless the uh, colony is threatened, whereas wasps and hornets are more aggressive. So it was interesting, some of the things, really about the biggest thing when it comes to bees and hornets and wasps, you can get an allergic reaction, sometimes a, you know, an anaphylactic type reaction, but typically it's, it's I have just- have to have an EpiPen around. Yeah. yeah. That's not common, but it does happen. So so what the preventative measures are, it was interesting. One of the things they said is wear shoes because obviously bees, you know, uh, pollinate. And if you step on flowers, you can actually step on a bee. And if you're barefooted, you get stung. The other thing that was interesting too, it said is don't try to swat them away. Do your best to just stay still because they react to sudden movements. So sit still. Yeah, don't run. We've had clients and yeah. patients that ran and... Vroom, here they all yep. came after them. Exactly. The other thing too is they, they typically are attracted to sweet aromas. So picnics, oh, obviously. That's why they like me. <laughs> yes. It's all that chocolate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The other thing that I said too is don't wear sweet smelling perfumes or colognes because that can be an attracting point as well. Next is ants, which is the most common summer bug that there is. And Again, the biggest thing you're going to get with ants is just an allergic reaction. Um, and there's two primary types of ants. You have the fire ants, which tend to love sunny spaces, open spaces, and they can give a nice painful sting. The most common, though, is carpenter ants. And the biggest thing with them is they love wood. So they can get into your house and really be destructive. And it's funny because most of the rest of these, about the only thing they said that you can do is basically just make sure you got all the cracks sealed in your foundation or in your um, housing. So, um, what was also mentioned is bug bed bugs. They typically come in on clothing and they tend to be a little bit more active during the summer. So that's something you need to be aware of as well. And then the last is spiders, the spider. And so what's interesting about spiders is they tend to eat other bugs. So do we want to kill them off or do we want to keep them? So let's, let's keep them outside though. Uh, yeah. But what about the bugs in your house? Yeah. I know, they bug me too, yeah. Kill them exactly. all. Kill, kill them all. <laughs> so was, to kill them to remove them. Yeah. So with spiders, typically the biggest thing you're going to get is painful irritation uh, of the skin. Sometimes if you get you know a brown, a brown recluse, you can have cratering, cratering of the skin. So we want to be aware of that as well. You want to get it, um, attention as quick as possible with those. So this leads me to a question I wanted to ask in between the the bugs, and we'll talk about treatments or things we can do is what is their purpose? Do they serve a purpose? Well, evidently they bug us, yeah. <laughs> Besides bugging us, is there anything else? I mean, obviously they're a created creature. A created creature, right. So what's their purpose? I actually kind of unrelated wonder this about snakes. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have an answer for you. So I'm going to ask God when I see him. <laughs> it's all part of the food chain. <laughs> it's it, baby. <laughs> If it's how they spread, there, there's a reason that they're there to help right. either pollinate things, if we think about the bees yes, and, and exactly. those things. Yeah. And there's other aspects that they still carry and plant. If you think about ants, they actually allow tunneling in the ground to water and to produce right. things down into the fungi, the mold issue. Right. I mean, so there is a, there's a creative design in all this. Right. Well, I think opinion. so many times as we talk about this stuff, we, we get in such a rush to kill all this stuff instead of how do we better interact with it? Right. I think is really the issue. So great question. Yeah. yeah. So with that in mind, let's talk about what we typically do for it. So summertime, what do we do the most? Spray on bug repellent. And what is the most common ingredient in bug, bug repellent? Now there's several of them, but the most common is what's called DEET. Okay. Um, and, and here's what's interesting is, so according to the CDC, where was this? According to the CDC, DEET products used as directed should not be harmful. Although in rare cases, using DEET products can cause skin irritation. So, do you guys know what DEET is? Give us the details. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. That was a good cat joke. Give those DEETs. So, DEET is a neurotoxin. It is a 3,2-acetylcholinesterase. 
is what it is. Wow. Now, here's what's interesting is the the way it actually works, and especially since we talked about mosquitoes being the biggest one, is it actually interferes with the receptors on the mosquitoes' antennae, and they can't smell you. You become invisible, which is a good thing. Right. Now, what's what's the side? What's of, the bad? What's, yeah. Right. What's the bad? Acetylcholinesterase. I know what that does, but which does what? Oh well, it's going to interrupt a lot of factors. Let's start with energy number one. Right. Right. So I'll go ahead. Oh, it's it's that's what I find funny is okay we're putting a neurotoxin on ourselves and we think it's not going to affect us. In mild cases, you can have headache, fatigue, dizziness, loss of appetite, nausea, stomach cramps, and diarrhea. In severe cases, we get more into your seizures, uncoordinated movements, agitation, aggressive behavior. Maybe that's no, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> no, but do talk about autistic kids and some low, issues, right, right, low blood pressure and skin irritations, and those are just kind of the obvious ones. But yeah, think about that. If it's a neurotoxin and we're continually putting this on ourselves, it's going to be absorbed. So we caution you know, young parents: don't put that on your your young child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to talk about some alternatives here in just a sec. Here's what I, I also found interesting is I was reading one article that says, why does DEET have such a bad reputation? Um, the, this particular expert says this stems from several cases in the 1980s of people dying from drinking DEET. Hmm. I, I might go back to my same question. Why? Yeah. I, so... Absolutely, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Starbucks is closed. Yeah. <laughs> they the probably had something else to drink first. Alcohol induced. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Uh, yeah. I wonder how well this will mix with my alcohol. <laughs> so the other thing they said is they thought sometimes it gets confused with DDT, which it was is now a a banned chemical insecticide that can promote uh, cancer and birth defects. So I just I thought it was kind of interesting how how that plays in there. So. Well, but when you think about pesticides, insecticides, and herbicides, mm-hmm. I mean, they all have a different reaction mm-hmm. on the different pest or bug in this case. Right. But then also, what does it do to us, you know, and those issues? And all three of them, I mean, we, we talk about the body's ability to de- detoxify those things. If you've lost that ability, you're genetically altered the rest of your life. Well, and I think it, it's like so many other things that if we don't notice the effects right away, well, then it's, it's not affecting me. We just ignore it. And it's a slow think, death. Exactly. Well, and, and we trust authorities that tell us this is safe. <clears throat> okay. Safe means what? So, okay. So alternative solutions. There's actually a new one that the CC, CDC recommends, which is called Picardian, which is actually, it's a synthetic repellent that mimics the effects of purpurine, which is found in plants that produce black pepper. So that's kind of interesting. So, Another one I found that I thought was interesting too was on a another exterminator's website is it was basically comparing natural uh, alternatives to their own and he said one calls for mixing mint mouthwash, Epsom salt, and stale beer, and spraying that around your yard. Hmm. So you got a stale alcoholic minty smell all around your house. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to just kind of list these off. I'm not going to go to them in depth. It's interesting because there's there's about two or three different ways you can do natural repellents. One is something you spray on, something you rub on, or something you plant or put around your house to repel insects. So the most of these, and if we want, we could even put a link to the, the website. I saw this on, but are, most of them are created into sprays. So the first is lemon eucalyptus. It's an effective natural oil that is a natural mosquito repellent. Citronella oil, most people are familiar with. You can either put it in candles, you can put it in like tiki torches, those type of things. That's a natural repellent as well. Um, Most bugs, especially small bugs, hate citrus oils. So that's why this works. Lavender oil, uh, neem oil is another one. Cedarwood oil, clove spray. Um, Beeswax is a bug balm. We talked most of these are sprays. This is actually a balm that you can rub on yourself. Peppermint and castor oil are, are natural repellents as well. And then garlic and lemon juice. Not only does it get the bugs, it gets the vampires as well. Because they're, you know, they come out at <laughs> all the blood, blood suckers. suckers. You know, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then a few other ones uh, I thought were interesting. Uh, we already mentioned mint, but Kaysen, uh, I mean, uh, Caleb, catnip. Mm-hmm. You and your cats be safe. 
You may not be safe from the cats. <laughs> cats go a little crazy with it, but yeah. you know. Because they can scratch you and then, you know, that we know where yeah. that leads. So one <laughs> other one. lick your scratch. Exactly. <laughs> one other thing that I thought was interesting. Well, I mean, before I read this last one, it's um, I also read that lemongrass, which you can put in your um, landscape, is a natural repellent as well. So the other one is diatomaceous earth. I didn't know that. that yeah. It's actually a natural repellent as well. And then you can spread that around the house, you know. I mean, they've had a lot of people tell you, just put it right next to your foundation, and then yeah. it creates a barrier, yeah. you know. Because you want them to spiders. live outside. Yeah. You want you want them to live outside your house. Yeah, you know? you exactly. want them to take care of their whatever their, their uh, purpose is. You just don't want them coming inside and causing issues in there. But, yeah. <clears throat> like neighbors, just stay on their side of the fence. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Does diatomaceous earth help if you put it along the fence line? No. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> just how big a pile do you have to have? <laughs> so yeah. with that in mind, anything else that bugs you gentlemen about summer? Uh, a couple of things I want to bring up that you triggered when you said something there, and it's the microplastic components that are in a lot of the insecticides and pesticides and herbicides. And we forget that those are also in things like facial scrubs and toothpaste and these other components. And a lot of people think about the BPAs and the aspect of your water bottles. And I didn't get into all the symbols and all those things, but there are certain symbols you need to avoid. But we forget these micro uh, pollen or microplastic pollen uh, components or pellets, and they are become more prominent. And in, uh, there was a research done back, I think it was 2018, and they found 97% of all waters, good to bad, had them in it. And if you think about our plastic bags and the water bottles breaking down in the ocean, it's in fish, it's in plant life, it's in seaweed, it's in everything. And there's a lot of discussion about how damaging that really is. But I bring that because in herbicides, uh, pesticides, insecticides, it's a common thing that is used to help kill off bugs. What is it doing to all of us? So that ought to bug you to think about that. I don't know. Barbie said everything's fantastic when it's plastic, so... I think she meant the kind you swipe, though. No. Oh, oh, maybe that's what I meant. <laughs> well, that's Alrighty. all I have. I'm not bugged anymore. Bug out. Stay tuned for our next series. We'll be looking forward to seeing you then. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.